Welcome to the Sounds of the World. We are your hosts, Hillary and Bill. Together, we're going to travel around the world to discover new music, discuss musical topics, and interview fascinating people. Our world is a buffet of music, and it is time to eat. All right, everyone, welcome back. Uh, that was a brief sample of a heartbreaking work centered on the last few words of unarmed black men that were killed. Uh, the title is, of the piece is Seven Last Words of the Unarmed. The composer of this piece is our guest today, and we're so honored and excited to have him. Uh, he hails from Atlanta, where he went to Emory University, receiving his bachelor and master's degree. Uh, he's since gone on to study at the Yale School of Music. Uh, he's been a composition fellow at the Aspen Music Festival in school, where he worked with composers Stephen Hartke and Christopher Theophanidis. Uh, he's also an Emmy Award-winning composer, but also an educator. He has taught at the Holy Innocence Episcopal Church in Atlanta and served as Director of Choral Studies and Assistant Professor of Music at Andrew College. Please welcome to our humble podcast, Mr. Joel Thompson. Thank you so much. My pleasure. It's great to be here. Oh, it's, it's such an honor to talk to you. Uh, um, actually, the, your piece, The Seven Last Words, was actually a, a real big inspiration for me. Um, and my dissertation piece was um, talking about uh, similar ideas, uh, but it compared yeah. uh, interviews and current poetry with the poetry of Langston Hughes and nice. asked the question of how far have we come in 100 years. So, um, yes. But it was, it's a beautiful piece. Um, but before we get into music and pieces and things, mm -hmm. maybe we could get some background on you. So sure. uh, let's just give like your background, where you're from, and maybe some musical upbringing. Yeah, um, I was raised in a very musical family. Um, the center of music making was the home, but also church. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I became my church's pianist um, in my high school years. Uh, and it was there that I got like a hands-on opportunity to see how music created community and how communities create music and that, that cycle. And that's been really essential to um, my craft moving forward. But um, yeah, I think my, my, my parents sang and still do sing. Um, and that was my first 
you know, entryway into music making. And the piano sh followed shortly afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, when I was in high school, um, I signed up for band, even though I didn't know how to play an instrument. And <laughs> the assistant director um, pulled me into a room for like the first two weeks and taught me the basics of the bass clarinet and then threw me into the into the tank <laughs> and I <laughs> kept afloat for the next eight years playing in um, wind ensembles um, and so that's getting getting to be a part of the band world for you know almost a decade was also crucial to to my musical DNA I suppose mm -hmm. um, but then in in college was when I got back to singing um, in choir um, outside of a religious institution, you know, right. um, and I immediately fell in love um, and got a master's degree in choral conducting. Um, and, you know, the, the, the places that I taught at, like Holy Innocence Episcopal School and Andrew College, I was there as the, the choral dude um, <laughs> <laughs> in charge of, a, um, you know, making choral music for those respective academic communities. Um, so choral music and singing um, is definitely at the center of my um, oeuvre today. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love that, um, you know, it came from the home first off and yeah. and how important it is at home with your family and then the church. And, yeah. and uh, we, you know, I have little ones and we try to, encourage them to you know interact with all kinds of music so yes uh, even in these hard covid times it's fun <laughs> definitely definitely my sister um my brother is a very avid tiktoker <laughs> 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 and um you know he uh he's a medical physicist by day but he's a dancer beatboxer violinist by night and oh wow he's, he's just going all over tiktok um and he'll keep sending me videos and my sister will send, you know, she has perfect pitch. Oh, she wow. She was able to, like, we listened to a lot of Take Six growing up. Uh, okay. Tight harmonies. She could listen to a Take Six track and transcribe it. Like, she's wow. that brilliant. Um, and, you know, they're not in, they've not chosen music as their professions, but mm -hmm. they're such great musicians. Um, and so they've been sending me, you know, little things over the, you know, the COVID tide. Um, and I just can't wait to go back to Atlanta and jam with them. My sister sent me a text. We we're trying to kidnap my brother because <laughs> he lives in Nashville now. <laughs> okay. Bring him, you know, make him stay in Atlanta for a little bit longer so he can like jam and record something or something. But yeah, we'll see. Right. right. <laughs> just tell him he has to quarantine for a while. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah your family was jamaica was from jamaica yeah both of my parents are jamaican um uh they had me though when um they moved to the bahamas my okay. dad uh was a professor of physics at the college of the bahamas my mom was a middle school teacher at bahamas academy elementary for a number of years but that's that's the island in which i was born uh, Nassau and Providence. Um, okay. But the law there is that um, you adopt the citizenship of your parents. So oh. I was a Jamaican citizen and uh, became a U.S. citizen when I was an undergrad. 
um, uh, we moved to the U.S. when I was 10, uh, first in Houston, Texas, and then in Atlanta. And it's really Atlanta that I consider home. Um, mm -hmm. I think a part of this sort of moving childhood and um, feeling a little bit unmoored or not really belonging to a specific place has influenced my music as well. Um, growing up in a homogeneously black country um, that is dependent upon uh, essentially other countries, predominantly like white tourists um, <laughs> for our economy, right. um, there, is, there is an awareness of this overarching uh, system, um, overarching hierarchy in which um, you can see who has money and who does not, and it usually corresponds to to skin color. But still, I, I there being black in the in the Caribbean is very different from being black in the United States, and I mm. definitely had to learn that when I when I moved here um, for middle school years, which is rough for anyone. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, and and so, I you know I was I'm not Jamaican enough to really be Jamaican. Right. I'm not Bahamian enough to be Bahamian. I'm not, and then you know talk to every black person in America, and there's a sense of like this is home, but it's it's missing something, mm -hmm. um, and sometimes it doesn't feel like home, um, and so there's this feeling of always being on the outside, always bearing witness to um, that I think does influence um, at least the perspective that I'm trying to communicate and express um, in my music. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's a little tangent, I guess. <laughs> that's okay. We like to go off on tangents, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So what got you interested in composing? You had done band and then vocal. So what were you like, I need to start composing stuff. <laughs> well, I think, I don't know. I think for most composers, it's, I don't know. I'm not going to speak for most composers. I'm going to speak for myself. Uh, <laughs> um, I, for me, it was because I had experienced so many different transcendent moments in music, in music making, in music experiencing. Um, and I wanted to try my hand at like creating one of those moments, you know? Right. Um, it felt so good for me. So I want to be able to see what would happen if I tried my hand at that and I could maybe create another transcendent moment for someone else and myself as well. Um, yeah, I, I definitely had some encouragement along the way. I started out doing arrangements. I mentioned take six earlier that my sister was able to transcribe all of that perfectly. Um, I don't have perfect pitch, but I painstakingly like coiled over, you know, <laughs> pencil because I heard harmonies and rhythms and things that I loved and I wanted to know how it worked, what made mm. that work. And so I spent a lot of time transcribing music that I liked um, from Take Six to Mozart. You know, I, I remember, you know, IMSLP didn't exist forever. You know? Right. <laughs> so like there were, 
this this wonderful advantage of just going online and finding the score just didn't happen. So I remember being really moved by the slow movement of the, uh, I think it's Piano Concerto number 21, mm-hmm. the famous Mozart one. Um, and I wanted to play it because it sounded easy enough for me to play too, you know, and I was like, let me, let me write this down. I, I wrote down the whole movement, what I could hear at least. Wow. Um, getting to getting inside the music that I liked in that way mm-hmm. um, that definitely started planting the seeds of maybe I could do this too um, I remember when a fellow church member gave me um, an early edition of finale okay like on a CD um, it's like I thought you would like this and I was like wow thank you yes <laughs> um, and I was able to trans transfer my written manuscript things over to the computer um and then in undergrad i I took um a couple years of lessons with john anthony lennon who was teaching at the time and uh yeah i i thought that i could do it um i applied to a um a, a summer music festival um after my senior year, I was still debating with my parents about going to med school, but that's a whole different story. <laughs> um, but um, I, I got into this, this music festival and while there I had a great, great time, except uh, at the end, I had a, a negative experience that caused me to avoid composition mm. or just put it in the background. Um, and uh, so that's when I switched to choral conducting. Okay. And it was only until I was working at Andrew College mm-hmm. in, um, after the, the master's degree. Um, that's when I wrote Seven Last Words for the Unarmed. And because I had had the habit of the last four years writing pieces and hiding them away and not showing anyone because I was did not want to recreate the incident that caused me to doubt myself as a composer right um i didn't show it to anyone until the following april 2015 um when i tried to sight read it basically and then someone called dr eugene rogers at the university of michigan and then he i sent him the score and he championed it and that sort of kicked off a composition career that i had thought i had sworn off basically by switching to choral conducting and then all of a sudden I'm being labeled a composer and I'm still coming to to terms with that being the primary focus of my musicianship. Mm -hmm. Um, But the more that I do it, the more that it feels like home. Mm. Um, This, this is what I want to spend the rest of my life doing. And, you know, a career in music is so ephemeral, you know, it's, this can evaporate tomorrow, <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm comfortable with 
or at least I'm trying to be comfortable with impermanence and just trying to write the best music that I can um, while I can. So, yeah. Yeah. I understand that. Yeah. It's amazing how sometimes the smallest thing you'll, well, maybe not the smallest thing, but something can make you just be like, okay, I'm going to put that away. Like I, I had even, I was even into my PhD my first year and I was just Mm -hmm. like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. This is this right. is not what I wanted. You know, maybe I need to leave and maybe go to pre-law, you know, go try mm. law school. You know, this isn't something that I should do. And then I got into a program in Paris and I was just like, went there, had a great, it was just a month, but it just like yeah. changed everything. And I came back and I was like, awesome. okay, this is, yeah, this is where I need to be. <laughs> yes. That change of perspective that does so much. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's amazing what those little things will do. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you're, you, you, you shared that. Um, <laughs> I think, I think many times, and I think I've, I've fallen victim to this too, that um, there's a specific path that one has to take. You know, we know that there are pipelines that are set up and if you want to get to that spot, you have to follow this path. But mm-hmm. um at least from what you've shared and I know of my journey as well it's it's been quite circuitous to get to this point oh yeah Um, and but all of those things inform who we are as musicians and that comes through in our music um so yeah I'm I'm grateful for every step of the journey even the parts that I didn't want to do this exactly (laughs) yeah I mean even Hillary she got she was almost done with an engineer like she was right into that path that you know and then she just, she couldn't do it anymore. So yeah, it's, it's amazing. Wow. So, so what are some of your inspirations who like that you really loved and listened to? Um, Esperanza Spalding. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, she's amazing. Um, just the way she thinks about music, huge inspiration. Um, my family, you know, like the music we make together. Um, it might not be anything special to anyone else, but it's like it's the glue that holds us together. Right. Um, from the minute you know we see each other again, we're singing and dancing and making music. So um, my family's definitely a huge inspiration. Uh, Bach, Rachmaninoff, Brahms. Uh, <laughs> Some great vocal composers. Yeah, yeah. Um, who else? My uh, teacher in undergrad um, was a piano teacher. Uh, Deborah Thorison is a huge inspiration. Um, and Laura Gordy, Dr. Laura Gordy. When I came to Emory, you know, I thought that Chopin was the beyond, be all and all <laughs> of, of music. I was like, this is the pinnacle. Right, right. Um, by the end of my time at Emory, she had me playing, Laura Gordy had me playing um, the the Concerto for Piano and Winds by Stravinsky. And I was like a oh. neoclassical freak. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> and yeah. I loved it. Um, you know, I, I'm the, the person walking in would have thought that that was too prickly. That's too noisy, you know, um, but she really caused me to expand my horizons and open my ears and, and hear music in a, new more exciting way um that didn't 
mean that I can't love Chopin or anything right. super melodic, but um, yeah, I just loved the way she, I loved her pedagogy. You know, mm -hmm. She respected me where I was, but still um, made things that were not as um, familiar to me really exciting. Yeah. Um, and I try to, I try to recreate that too when I'm, when I'm teaching as well. Um, yeah, who else is an inspiration? Um, maybe my teachers here at Yale are wonderful. I mean, uh, Theophanidis was, you know, he's a part of the Atlanta School of Music, uh, basically one of the composers championed by Robert Spano, um, who's been the conductor for years, at least while I've been there in Atlanta. And um, so I, I grew up listening to Theophanidis and it's been mm. a dream, like studying um, with him um, Hannah Lash also teaches here, and uh, David Lang, and Aaron J. Kernis, and Martin Bresnik. I'm studying with him now, so they're oh, all inspirations. Cool. Um, uh, but yeah, Esperanza Spalding, though. <laughs> 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 yeah, she's she's amazing. I would I would drop everything if she would allow me to study with her. I'm there. <laughs> oh, I feel like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. a couple of people that if they were just like, yeah, I've got a spot and it's waiting with your name on it, I'd be like, bye, everybody. Bye. Going. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> going. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sure there are more inspirations. Honestly, uh, there are a lot of my peers that are huge mm. inspirations for yes. me, you know? Um Alexis Lamb, she's a fellow student here. Well, she graduated um, from the Yale School of Music, but she's a percussionist, activist, composer, amazing human being, um, huge inspiration. Um, uh, Jesse Montgomery. Oh, okay. Um, she, she and I and, and uh, Valerie Coleman um, have been um, a part of the new works program at the Metropolitan Opera. Nice. And so... Um, yeah, you know, I've been a huge fan of Jesse Montgomery uh, for years. Um, yeah, I, I have to admit, I only added her on Facebook because we have the same last name. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but then, like, as like, I got to, like, hear the music, I was like, oh, this is awesome. I love this. Yeah, she's great. She's great. Um, she's, like, for strings what I am for primarily vocal music, you know? Right. Like she's... <laughs> um, who else? Uh, Carlos Simon. Yes. Carlos Simon. I oh, love yeah. his stuff. Love his stuff. Um, yeah. So, I mean, those those are the people, like, you know, I. we have conversations, we lift each other up. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, yeah, their music is huge inspiration to me. Yeah, I love that it's not just, you know, all the old dead guys, but there's like living composers that really, you know, yeah. push you and strive you to work harder. It's great. Yeah. Oh, Courtney Bryan. Oh, okay. We had a phone conversation a couple months ago. I should call her again. But yeah, she's <laughs> also great. And the, the, the fascinating thing is that, I don't know, you can get a little bit jaded the longer you stay in the classical world and you see sometimes that beautiful music can correspond to bad personalities and yeah. you know sort of twisted morals and but 
I've been so fortunate in that the people who I've respected and followed over the the years have also been just great people, you know, mm-hmm. willing to offer um, of themselves and and really empathetic people um, with, you know, no giant egos, you know, yeah. getting in the way. Um, it's I've been really fortunate to encounter um, such great musicians like that. We help, you know, push each other and and help each other listen to the world in a different way. So yeah. Oh, I feel that. I mean, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, the program we went to where Hillary and I actually met was in the Paris program. And we were one of three people who were from a state school. Everyone else was like, oh. you know, a, you know, Ivy league or, you know, private oh, yeah. conservatory and stuff. But yeah. And I was just like, Oh, these people are going to have egos and they're going to not want to be around me. And right. But we've all kept in really good touch and they're all big supporters of everybody and stuff. It's, it's really cool that I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing too. Like some of my peers, there's some music of theirs that I initially, like, I just don't get it or I don't, I don't immediately take to it, Mm -hmm. but then you get to know them a little bit more and know what they were trying to do. And then all of a sudden something clicks and like the music opens up to you. Yes. Yes. And I think sometimes we, it's sometimes if we don't immediately get someone's music or get something, we we just shut ourselves off to it and we just dismiss it. But Mm -hmm. always remembering that there's a human element. Um, I think that that keeps one grounded. Um, So I'm grateful for my peers for showing me that truth. Yeah. So um, you had talked about coming to America as, you know, from the Bahamas and living in Houston and then Atlanta and kind of Atlanta being your, your home stasis, so to speak. That definitely influenced uh, your music, as you said. So um, I guess let's just talk about your piece, America Will Be, if that's okay. amazing I, I listened to the recording um that was almost like a virtual choir yeah um and uh just you know even if you didn't have the images there but you had the the music itself i mean can you kind of give a little bit of background on the music like where the text came from yeah uh this was a commission by um uh shannon lyles i hope i'm remembering her name correctly she was the director of 
the Freedom High School Patriot Singer is a very patriotic <laughs> name, um, but that that's the name of the high school in Orlando, Florida. Okay. Um, and they were a, a fantastic high school choir and were recognized and honored by the American Choral Directors Association, um, the Southern Regional um, so, uh, American Choral Directors Association, um, for their excellent work, for being an excellent program. They were invited to sing at the ACDA convention okay. um, that year. This was, I think, 2017. Uh, and they heard my seven last words of the unarmed and commissioned me to write a, a closer for them. And the idea was of their program was I am. And mm -hmm. she basically wanted to introduce everything that the choir could do. Um, but an essential part of who they were was that there were 13 languages represented in that, in that choir because they were all either immigrants or children of immigrants. Okay. She wants those languages to be represented in their the closer. So I had to write a six minute closer <laughs> with all of these languages represented um, and sort of extolling the virtues of immigration because there was a really, there was a height of anti-immigrant rhetoric at right. that time. Um, that's only gotten worse since waxed and waned, but I think it was really particularly toxic around 2016, 2017. Mm -hmm. um, and she just wanted those students to feel seen and, mm -hmm. and heard in this case. Um, and so it was, a, it was a, no, I, I doubted the success of, of that piece for some time, but then, um, Hearing it again in this moment recently, you know, Tonality released a music video yeah. in the last two weeks. Um, and I needed to hear that in the last two weeks, you know, I just oh, really yeah. needed to hear that piece. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think a lot of us do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, just, to rem just to, you know, remind me of what, America represents for so mm -hmm. many people. Um, so the, I knew I wanted to use Langston Hughes because I'm a huge fan. Me too, um, me too. I also, and he said it so well in that poem, you know, yeah. Um, oh yeah. And then there's the, this, you know, the sonnet, the Emma Lazarus sonnet on the Statue of Liberty. And I just used the last portion that's on the, on the base. Um, and putting those two pieces in dialogue with each other is something that I'm familiar with doing. My Hold Fast to Dreams does the same thing between two Langston Hughes poems. Um, but still, you know, with this, those two, there's dialogue, but something is missing there. And then because I have to use those languages, I thought, why didn't I give the high schoolers prompts? Um, I hope, I dream, I sing, um, and have them finish it and then translate it into their respective languages mm. and so all of the members of the choir you know finished those sentences i hope for a new world i sing to escape um you know they, they all finished it in their own way and then i went through each of them and found the ones that i felt would connect would be the sort of connective tissue between 
the Langston Hughes and the Lazarus text. Um, and it was all leading up to, um, you know, I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Mm-hmm. Um, but also leading to Langston Hughes for all the songs we've sung, for all the dreams we've dreamed. America was never America to me. And yet, I swear, America will be. It's so moving. And it yet, is. I swear, you know, like he's he's referring to, you know, he's he's writing this at a time in which he's considered a second class citizen. Right. There's so many images of Ruby Bridges going around Facebook in the last few weeks because of uh, Kamala Harris, and there's someone made a beautiful poignant image um you know commemorating the fact that there is a black south asian woman as vice president of the elect of the country mm-hmm. um and connecting that to the ruby bridges incident but that happened 60 years ago like right. that's <laughs> that's so recent and we 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 tend to sort of um think that happened so long ago you know like but it was just 60 years ago yeah where she was you know i i think i read an interview that came out commemorating the 60th year of her you know being a huge part of integration of the schools and she said she was traumatized because there would be crowds bringing a coffin with a dead black you know doll in it and it's just like that's how violent this country was against someone looking like her walking into a school. Right. So when Langston Hughes says, for all the songs we've sung, for all the dreams we've dreamed, America was never America to me. That's Mm -hmm. what we're talking about there. But the fact that he follows it with, and yet, yeah, that's like the most moving thing to me. And yet, I swear, America will be. So, like at the the lowest point um, that we are, you know, now with this political chaos that's going on, I like to hold on to that. And yet, I swear, mm-hmm. part. Um, says and yet he's holding america to his standards though you know Mm -hmm. like he's going to hold that and make that dream come true you know i just that's what i love so much about that poem and especially with how you said it with uh not just like the text painting like when america you quote america you know yeah and uh it's you caught that (laughs) i did did. (laughs) Um, but it's uh it's a holding us to that ideal that it was that america was started on you know mm-hmm. that you know this is a, supposed to be a bastion of safety for all um mm-hmm. and uh things may not always be as bright as they should be but mm-hmm. we should never give up that idea to keep pushing for that yes so yeah. i just it's such a yeah it's such a beautiful piece and then Thank um you. 
So, uh, you know, that you said that there was 13 languages in the choir. So how, I, was there like seven languages in the piece or did you have all 13 in? I think I put all of them in there. I, it was either okay. 11 or 13. I'm just blanking on my, on my prime numbers, I guess. <laughs> um, no, I, it's, it was a 11 or, or 13. I should know this. No, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. I, I included I included all of them. Okay. Um, there's there's a little build up um, where I start with Sindala, which is um, the language of I believe Sri Lanka, uh, language of Sri Lanka. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I layer it with like um, Arabic. There's Portuguese, mm -hmm. um, and then. There's another one that I'm missing. Oh, Tagalog. Um, okay. Filipino. Um, and then later on, um, there's Vietnamese, Chinese, German, uh, Haitian Creole, mm. um, German. Oh, did I say German already? I said German. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a number of other, other languages there, but I, I chose to use them for specific textures for specific reasons kind of because I was switching back and forth between... Um, texts or or segments of um langston uses you know very long poem um so yeah yeah i i mean it was it was amazing like i'm kind of a big theory nerd and you know <laughs> analyzing everything so um but <laughs> but just the the use of all these separate languages like i didn't know that that was part of the prompt but really helped encapsulate that idea of you know, America being born of immigrants, you know, mm -hmm. and it was, you know, like I said, whether or not you had the images that uh, tonality used with people on boats and things, but yeah. um, the idea of incorporating all these different languages is really the melting pot that is, you know, mm -hmm. or should be America is just, it's, it was astounding. <laughs> yeah, uh, thanks. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, Langston Hughes in his poem, he starts with, who are you that mumbles in the dark? Yes. Who are you that draws your veil across the stars? You know, and he goes to list, you know, I'm the one who dreamt a dream, muscle a surf of kings. He goes all the way back to like feudalism and mm -hmm. you know, medieval times and, you know, like showing the legacy of oppression and the legacy of hope, honestly, in the mm -hmm. face of that oppression and how America came to represent that hope. Mm -hmm. um, and then the rest of the poem casts, you know, a discerning eye on the identity of America. You know, like we have been hope in the face of oppression. We have been the one who has lifted up the serf instead of the king. Mm -hmm. And now look at what we are doing. We're creating these hierarchies in which we're pushing people down and, and, and keeping them from life liberty pursuit in the pursuit of happiness and so um yeah the, the langston hughes poem was honestly a very strong guide for mm. the structure of the piece it was it's really the the spine but to put it in dialogue with the statue of liberty the send these to me um gave it a, more of an uplift you know that I, I felt was sort of necessary to balance the the dark with the light um <clears throat> Yeah, no, I it was great that the juxtaposing between the two. Yeah. Um and uh 
you know, there were two things about like the end that really stuck out to me. And one was that low bass note. When I heard that, that bass hit that note, I was just like, Whoa, okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's actually an optional note. Okay. um, In the score. It's, it's, it's not even, I think he's saying a low, like a C2. Yeah. Um, but what I have notated in the score is a C3, but Alex Blake asked you know, I have a guy who could sing. <laughs> Do you want that? I'm like, sure, whatever. <laughs> you know. And, and I wrote it for high school choir. So there's like also a high C at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the score, it only goes up to a G, but Alex was like, you know, I also have an IC, so let's we could do that too. <laughs> so yeah. I was like, okay, fine. Let's go over um, five octaves. <laughs> yeah, he just wanted to showcase the ensemble he had, which was a very good ensemble. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, um, it wasn't necessarily in the score. I was definitely mindful of you know who I was writing for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, when I read that, it was like supposedly high school students was like, "What? High school students hitting this?" I don't. But uh, but also the chord makeup itself, like it feels that one with um, also Hold Fast to Dreams and a few other pieces where you have these kind of ending chords that don't, they don't resolve, like they resolve enough that there's a resolution of the tension, but it's like they shimmer or they kind of, you know, for a too much Whitaker in my life. There's a like a <laughs> shimmer or a glow to the chord, you know? Yeah. Is that like a, a conscious decision or do you just, you're like, this is where it feels the rest or? Well, the thing with um, the America will be chord, um, that one was actually the, the cadence. I like my cadences. The cadence was, uh, <laughs> the cadence was prickly, I guess. But mm. the resulting chord was actually just a straight C major chord, um, where I, I pondered doing a ninth in there, but I think I just like had it resolve up to the third. Um, the hold fast to dreams chord, though, I wanted to keep a little bit of the fact that the dream is still deferred. Yeah, I feel like America will be, you know, clings to the sort of like bright C major chord, no shimmer really, um, just carefully voiced. Um, The whole Fast to Dreams, though, was definitely, you know, a purposeful clouding, I I guess, um, of, of the chord to show that it's not quite resolved just yet. We yeah. have to keep dreaming um, because we're, we're not there yet. Yeah, it, there's that, 
I couldn't tell if it was hopeful or if it was resol- like pensively yeah. resolute or, you know, so. Um, yeah, I like that ambiguity for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially with the, the type of subjects that it's over, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do a wonderful way, wonderful ability to create so much with, like, it didn't seem like there was much Divisi in the SATB either. Mm. Um, like, not much. I remember, like, in, um, what is it, Hold Fast to Dreams, there's a part where you mm-hmm. have, like, the altos or soprano alto tenors all Divisi and the bass mm-hmm. is waiting to come in. I want it, or does it explode, to be as soft as possible. Um, because in the context of the Langston Hughes, Hughes poem, he italicizes that, mm-hmm. at least in like, you know, prints of the poem that I've seen. Um, and there's something so ominous about, or does it explode? Um, you know, this was, I was writing this while there were lots of protests happening around the deaths of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. And we were seeing the, we're seeing it explode. We were seeing it explode in real time. Right. Um, but rather than said it really loud, I had it spoken quietly and the impact afterwards really loud. And for me, the sopranos coming in on that A is sort of like, you know, in the movies where there's an explosion and then it's just like this ringing in the air. After yes. the grenade hits, that's sort of what the, that big impact on the piano and then the ring and then that builds into a, a sort of primal scream that leads into the, the aria portion of the piece, Hold Fast to Dreams. Um, yeah, I think that that was sort of the um, thinking behind that moment, at least. Oh, I love that. I love that you kind of capture the, the tinnitus you know, yeah. explosion, you know, uh, yeah. it's so, I mean, the first reading for me, like I probably would have been like explode. Okay. Now we need to go, you know? Yeah. Uh, but then to think, well, maybe it's more like a pensive question rather than, you know, and then yeah. we don't actually hear the explosion. We just hear the reverberation afterwards. Right. It's yeah. such a cool idea. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it was, it was the, because we are in the impact of the explosion and that's what I wanted to hold on to in the next part of the piece, which was hold fast to dreams for when dreams die life is like a broken winged bird that cannot fly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I wrote this in the, in the tinnitus. I, I wrote yeah. this in the, in that state. Um, and so I think it made sense for me to sort of recreate that state in the metaphor you know, um, of the piece and then have the, the, um, the call to hope to come out of that. Cause that's what I needed. You know, I just, it, yeah. I needed that catharsis. <laughs> <laughs> no, I understand. You know, I like why I'm writing political music. I'm really writing for myself. I'm just writing to calm myself and like, you know, make sense of it. It's, it's like doing a puzzle. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
Is that how Seven Last Words came about? It was more of a, like a yeah. personal expression of what happened or? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the most vulnerable raw piece I've ever written. And I don't think I will ever approach that level of vulnerability ever again, because now I am painfully aware of an audience. Mm -hmm. um, but at that time, you know, I was hiding things away and it was just a way for me to make sense of what was going on. Right. Um, a response to um, the dehumanization uh, of black people that was going on around me. And it was a way for me to hold on to my own humanity, mm -hmm. um, to lift up the, the humanity of all of these men um, whose lives were taken before their time. Um, mm -hmm. In doing so, I was focusing on my own humanity. Um, and it was so healing. Um, I, I wouldn't say that. It was not a process that I will ever repeat. It was, mm -hmm. I was not taking care of myself. It was not, um, I won't romanticize that at all. Um, I've gotten better at taking care of myself. But yeah. once I was done with the piece, I felt so much better. Oh, okay. Um, you know, I wrote, uh, I wrote it in the order that it is presented, you know, okay. when it's performed. Um, and before setting the words, I would read everything I could about each of the men. And if there was video footage, I would watch them die from oh. multiple camera angles and then write down the music that I heard. Mm. Would not recommend doing that um, because it was, I only had my winter break to write. I had no time during the semester. Oh, so wow. I had to write it in two weeks. Oh, so wow. I was just like, go, 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 go. And so I was just in the depths of despair for those two weeks. But once I was done, I was able to start my spring semester with a spring in my step. But um, yeah, that that piece, yeah, it was definitely written for a personal catharsis. But it's amazing that you, you did this in two weeks. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the plan, the plan um, hatched in November, really. I mean, it was in November, um, but I just didn't have time to write it. You know, mm -hmm. I, I had a table out on, in word of the seven last words of Christ. And then I chose the seven last words that I, of the men that I was going to set from Sharon Bargy's pictogram series, the last word series. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's how I organized the piece and I sort of knew the order that I was going to do it in, but, um, all the writing, of pencil to paper happened um, in those two weeks, yeah.
do you consider yourself more like a composer conductor or a conductor composer? Because we asked Quinn Mason that too, and he's just like, "Ooh, that's a hard one." <laughs> it is. That is a very hard question. I do. I will say I miss conducting a lot. Mm. Um, composing is and can be a very solitary endeavor. But mm. I think, as you heard from me describing my musical background, I really love the the idea of communities getting together and making music. And uh, a choral ensemble is inherently a community. And I think that's sort of why I like working with choirs in particular. Um, so I do miss that communal space that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, granted, I, you know, I sing in a choir here at Yale, um, which is now virtual, which is no longer the same sense of community. Oh, yeah. So like, I like being in a choir, but I also like leading a choir. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I definitely miss conducting. Um, but I've, I've learned to embrace the, um, the, the moniker, I guess, uh, the label of composer. So I don't know, maybe I would say composer conductor. Yeah. <laughs> maybe composer conductor. I don't know. Talk to me next year. I might be conductor composer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Quinn was like struck with that one. He's just like, I don't know. Cause he always liked you. He loved conducting. And I'm like, the only reason I got really into music composing, aside from the fact that I love composing, was I hated performing. <laughs> uh, same, same. So I well, just, I mean, I didn't hate it. I was just like, I would get a panic attack every time I had to do it. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, and I was one of the, so we, like, in my hometown, there's a little civic symphony, and they always had one person they always went to for keyboard. And I was mm-hmm. kind of the other person because I was percussion and keyboard. And we did the Nutcracker and every year I had to play the stupid Celeste and it was just uh, the last year I did it, I was still terrified and they had it right next to the edge of the stage. And I heard this little boy off to my right go, you can see him shaking. (laughs) I was just like, (laughs) we don't need to point this out. (laughs) Oh gosh. So, but yeah, that was, so I was like, okay, I need to really, you know, invest in going into composition. So, um, so I guess the the last thing I have is, uh, we've kind of already talked about it a lot of the time was, um, what do you think music can do for fight for social equality or realization of minorities that other forms of art might not be able to do? Hmm. that other forms of art might not be able to do. Yeah, I think the fact that uh, that music moves through time um, that we attach many basic human rituals Mm. to the experience of music. Um, It lends itself to community 
um, I think that's part of why I have such a strong affinity and attraction towards the choral arts. Um, because they're like mini societies mm -hmm. and it's a rare moment in which you have a bunch of people getting together in pursuit of truth and beauty um, uh, in, a, in, in a musical context. And um, I think music is particularly adept at that compared to, you know, the visual arts, everything's open to individual interpretation, but there's something so communal and um, sort of a, a microcosm of society at large, whether it's on stage in the ensemble represented or off the stage in the audience. Like there is a, there is a communal experience that allows us, sometimes music can allow us to be fully aware of ourselves in that communal context. Um, and you know, some people right now are hearing that and thinking of a Beyonce concert and how <laughs> everyone's singing along. Right. And some of us are listening to that and thinking of, you know, you know, Tchaikovsky Pathetique right before the last movement, you mm -hmm. know, and then, <laughs> you know, like there are, there are rituals, there are communal experiences. Everyone's getting their coughs out so that we can focus on this swan song, you know, mm -hmm. like this, um, yeah, I, I think music is adept at making that happen. Um, can music fix the problems that we're trying to address? Uh, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I do know that music leads to transformative, transcendent experiences. This is why we are musicians. Right. Because we know what that's like and we want to create that for someone else and that transformative energy happens on an individual level mm -hmm. um, and if interacting with music that is honest um, about the black experience in this country if interacting with music that is like that leads one to transform oneself towards a more anti-racist perspective and way of moving through the world, then it does change right. the world in a small way. And that's all I'm hoping for, to be honest. One person at a time. Um, Seven Last Words of the Unarmed, which you've talked about quite a bit already, is the one piece that I've written that I don't want to be relevant. Right. Um, but it continues to be so. But rather than feeling awkward about that um, or dismayed about that, to be honest, I'd like to focus on the fact that the more people enter that space that the piece invites them to, that mm -hmm. space of empathy, that space of understanding, that space of listening to my grief and pain and anger and by proxy that of you know countless black americans um that one can open one's ears and one's heart uh to to that struggle and be a part of the solution rather than the problem mm -hmm. um it's not going to happen by the double bar line 
Right. But I think it will at least open the door just enough for someone to try and open it wider and walk through. Um, and so that's what I think music can do. Uh, that being said, I, I take a lot of inspiration from the visual arts. Um, what uh, Titus Kafar, he's a, he's a local artist here in New Haven with international renown. Um, his, his art is similar to what I'm doing. It's, it, it looks very, he'll work with like one of his, one of my favorite paintings of his is really a painting of Thomas Jefferson, mm -hmm. like in the style of the presidential portraits in the National Gallery and in the White House. But it's peeled back and you see a portrait of Sally Hemings behind. Um, and it looks like traditional portraiture. So one might say this is not contemporary. It's sort of old fashioned. It's tonal as it were. <laughs> um, but what is new about it is how he's using these traditional building blocks to say something that's so radical that forces the viewer to look at the legacy of Thomas Jefferson in a new way and recognize, you know, the raped 16 year old black slave mm -hmm. that is attached to his legacy. Um, yeah. And so I, it's, it's radical in that way. It's very, you know, fully contemporary. Kehinde Wiley, you know, with his, with his sculptures and also his portraits of um, the, the Obamas, um, huge inspiration. Um, just the way he's working with all, both those artists are interacting with the, um, their own marginalization in the fields that they're working in. Right. You know, how revolutionary it is to have a black guy with dreads and a hoodie on top of a horse on a sculpture, like where <laughs> one would see a general with a sword and, you know, a white wig, a powdered right. wig or something, you know, like it's, that's a revolutionary to put black people in that context. And um, that's what I want to do in my art. But I think at the same time that music has a slight advantage um, in that it really is not necessary. It's, it's, less didactic, although I wouldn't say that it's didactic at all, it, but it, it provides an opportunity for um, a community to experience it together. Um, yeah, I'm sure there's lots of holes in, in that argument. <laughs> um, but that's how I feel right now. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. And I think yeah. that music also gives each person within the community, it's their own safe space to deal mm -hmm. with being presented, you know? Yeah. It's like, and you can process it together afterwards. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, after afterwards, you know, I remember going out uh, after a concert with friends, whether, you know, if we performed or we were in the audience and mm -hmm. we would talk about the music that we heard and, yeah. you know, and someone who was sitting right next to me had a completely different a experience, different experience. Yes. you know? So it's, it's, it's really cool. Well, thank you so much, Joel. Uh, this has been amazing and it's been inspiring, especially to me. Uh, I definitely want to see, I've, I haven't written much for voice, so see what I can kind of cobble together. <laughs> yes, do it. <laughs>
So thank you so much for being on our podcast. No problem. My pleasure. It was, it was wonderful talking to you. Perfect. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sounds of the World podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode. There are links to everything in the episode description and also on our website. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sounds of the World. To show support for Sounds of the World podcast, please join our Patreon, where you can have access to our after-party discussions with guests, discounted merchandise, and even more. If you have any questions, answers, or episode suggestions, please email us at Sounds of the world podcast at gmail.com. Well, Bill, I think I'm going to go have a beer now. Hey, there you go.